Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets podcast. I'm Mark Robinson, filling in for John Human, who our editor who's away on a holiday in Austria, Vienna, I think, maybe Salzburg or perhaps even Brunau. Uh, I'm joined in the studio today by the IC Features Editor, Alex Newman, and our news editor, Emma Powell. Emma is also the author of this week's cover features, looking at the performance of the UK's high street banks against their challenger rivals and how that's changed since the global financial crisis. But before we come on to the main show, we just have a look at some of this week's uh, news output uh, Uh, with Alex and uh, Emma if she wants to chime in as well. I guess there's an overarching regulatory theme to the magazine this week. Our first uh, news article concerns Anglo-American, the minor. And there's been some bad news this week, uh, Alex, not related to uh, its African assets, though. Yeah, for once, it's not the South African assets which uh, appear to be in trouble, but it's the Minas Rio iron ore operation in Brazil where their, over the Easter weekend uh, operations were suspended because a leak connecting the mine to an export terminal in Rio de Janeiro was, was found. So they're going to have to do a 90-day inspection of the pipe. That's pretty costly. It also means that obviously they can't produce anything. So this uh, mine, they produce iron ore in slurry form, and then it's piped out. So this is, yeah, it was p- pretty annoying for, um, for Anglo-American because they haven't got too many big growth projects on at the moment but Minas Rio is is definitely one of them so this is where they're hoping to pretty much triple capacity in the in the next three years. I think uh, the delays at that mine as well were part of the reason why uh, uh, Cynthia Carroll eventually had to resign a post as chief executive. Yeah yeah and um, and then it came on stream in 2014 just as iron ore prices were drop into their worst in 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 many many years so they're actually uh, thinking of selling that at some point or, or at least considering it i believe yeah but i mean it's it's now very much part of their at least in terms of their their corporate literature very much part of their their future growth plans even though there are you know there's quite a lot of dampened sentiment for for iron ore prices yeah i, I guess part of that is probably they they want to um diversify away from uh, their african assets a little bit yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and Brazil, I think, is, is still a fair, fair degree of geopolitical risk. Perhaps that's the tier that Anglo-American is just a bit more comfortable in when you compare it to the likes of Rio Tinto, which tends not to go into certain jurisdictions because there is a elevated uh, geopolitical risk. Anglo, perhaps the differentiating factor is that they, you know, they're not they're not too afraid. What's the likely financial hit? Do we know from the from this uh, current problem? So last year, Ministerio generated about uh, two hundred million dollars in earnings before interest and taxes. This year, it was it was planning on expanding production quite considerably. So uh, three months out is going to, I mean, just back at back of an envelope calculation, it's, it's probably going to mean it's going to be hard for the mine to generate those, those sort of earnings for the, for the whole year, even though it was probably expecting to make a 50% higher than that. So it's a bit of a hit. And then obviously there's the cost associated with doing the, the pipeline checks as well. So a bit of a setback. And then the, the, I suppose the broader broader news, which is which has actually hit the share price a bit harder this week, has been the uh, ongoing threats to uh, global trade and the the because China have come back this week against the US, haven't they? Yeah. So um, today's today's Thursday. It's uh, it, it looks like there's we're still no closer to negotiations, but this tit for tat um, trade war rhetoric is is escalating, and obviously miners and commodity suppliers are at the forefront of the threat, really. Because I mean, if, if there's a threat to global economic growth, then 
there will be certainly a threat to yeah pr- yeah all the primary producers yeah. really yeah. yeah that's that's um that's quite disturbing but uh, i don't know uh, we'll have to see how that one uh, pans out really but it's obviously something that our, all our readership should be keeping their eyes on at the moment uh, as many of our readers know we go to uh, press on a wednesday and uh, harriet russell had written up a, a story looking at uh, conviviality uh, specifically their transition to uh, a wholesaler and uh, what part that may have played in uh, their downfall and at that point we uh, we were under the impression that there were uh, they brought the administrators in but that changed late in the day didn't it, emma well, yeah, um, news broke quite late in the day that, that some of the workers, at least, their employees of the wholesale business, Matthew Clark and Bibbendum, have uh, been thrown a bit of a lifeline because CNC have uh, made an offer, basically, to buy that business. That's the Irish uh, drinks producer. Yeah, there. I sorry, mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, they're coming in the, the 11th hour as well. They're going to have a little bit of uh, leverage on those deals, too. So presumably it works out uh, in their favour. But uh, we would imagine there's... Uh, there's still going to be some uh, that that act hasn't played out fully for conviviality at this stage Uh, I would imagine that management will remain under pressure. This week's new spotlight uh, was actually written by uh, Alex uh, as well and it's a rather unusual take Uh, again uh, this has a sort of regulatory theme to it so it's an unusual story for the IC Alex, it's an analyst personnel move What's the story and uh, how come we're writing about it? Yeah, so the story is uh, Barclays head of uh, utilities or the chap who heads up or used to head up until very recently the uh, research that Barclays puts out on European utilities has left to join a financial think tank called Carbon Tracker. It's, I suppose, unusual because we don't normally report on the comings and goings of personnel at uh, research houses and, and brokerages. We uh, spoke with Mark Lewis, who, who's made the move, and it's just it's quite an interesting move for two reasons. The first being the changes in the banking sector, which I know Emma's written a lot about in the last few months, and specifically MIFID two rules, which has had a bit of a it's had quite a shake up on the way in the way brokerages sell their research to asset managers and you know the big institutional investors who, who buy their research so they've it's actually had... about transparency this is yeah it? so the 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 goal is transparency in financial markets but what the the sellers of their of the research are having to do is unbundle them from all the other transactions they they make with banks and and with their clients so it means that it's a harder job to sell the research presumably and it's going to be more scrutiny from the buyers of the research so it comes at an interesting time there, and uh, Mr. Lewis th- did say that there were, you know, that was that was partly a push factor. And the other, the pull factor is that has created a bit of a gap in the market. So he thinks, in terms of the research that could be pro- provided from alternative research providers that aren't regulated by, you know, these these banking regulations. And so to have joined a, a think tank that focuses on climate change, in which he says, you know, in in ways that the investment bank investment banking community has failed to anticipate. Yes, it's, it's quite another uh, interesting thing. Well, it, it could have some potentially beneficial implications as well, because um, one of the criticisms of sell-side research is that it may be tainted by, uh, they might be compromised by the other commercial interests that these investment houses have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, not necessarily point, pointing fingers 
Chinese walls Directly, are stuck. Yeah, uh, but sorry. I mean, indeed. So the, chi- the you know the idea of a Chinese wall where a brokerage can act on behalf of a company and gain you know millions in investment banking fees, and at the same time putting out a research report on on the company. You'd, it's not hard to see the inevitable skewering of of, of the opinion. The other, uh, you know, the the other element to research, which I, I, I often come across in the in the case of the oil and gas sector, which I struggle with, is that it's research is often written on a sort of twelve month forward basis. So it's about the return that investors can expect on pr- a pretty short time horizon. We, I mean, what we do at the Investors Chronicle is try and look at a little bit. A little bit longer than that and certainly when it comes to sectors like european utilities which have had a dreadful decade or oil and gas which we'd expect is going to have a very very tough couple of decades ahead of it is that really 12 month forward-looking um, research reports don't really do you know tell you a lot of the lot of the picture and certainly if i was investing in oil and gas stocks i would want to have a lot further time time horizon um, well if you'd if you'd have asked me five years ago let alone 10 years ago i would i would have um struggled to believe that uh, unit costs for renewables are, are now economically viable yeah and i think that was pretty much true that was pretty much the um the consensus amongst, amongst uh, the advisors at this stage so ten, 10 years ago um i mean the common consensus was that subsidies were required for for indefinitely for renewables to to be able to compete with um Fossil fuels—that's now no longer the case. I mean, you know, in some areas of solar, uh, there, you know, subsidies are, are still needed. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 reaching certainly reaching parity. Yeah, I mean, what this means for for retail investors is 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 another, I suppose, in, interesting question. Like, Emma, I know when you wrote your your feature on on um, uh, the feature on regulation a few weeks ago with with Harry, you you spoke about how this might this might affect smaller companies, particularly if there's a dearth of research there, then. That could lead to sort of quite volatile uh, share price swings, but you know I suppose our, many of our listeners and readers in, don't actually get access to a lot of this res- research anyway. So I mean, perhaps it's much of a muchness to to lots of uh, people out there. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the, the other argument uh, would be for the kind of small cap companies that actually it makes estimating you know forward earnings a lot harder. So maybe I don't know investors may have less to go on in terms of a consensus estimate. That is the um, the other argument uh, that I heard. I wrote a feature on the future of equity research, actually, just um, mm. it was about a year ago now before before the rules came into force. And that was certainly the, the argument that not only would it maybe obscure or just mean that fewer analysts were obviously contributing to a consensus estimate, but that, yeah, it would maybe create more volatile share prices. Yeah, you've got to wonder uh, who the investment investment houses are pitching towards as well, because you often find with uh, small cap fledgling companies, they've got very limited coverage. In many cases, it's just the one uh, analyst who happens to be the house analyst as well. So that's no sort of coverage at all, really. But you know, we were uh, we were minded that um, there would be a lot of companies pulling out of the uh, the small end of the market, especially those uh, companies that have a, a very poor secondary market. And that's true of a great many AIM companies as well. But it's uh, certainly one to watch there. I think, as your article pointed before, because it could have some uh, an unusual take on investment. As you say, I mean, this carbon tracker, for instance, would be more inclined to look at long-term trends as well, and um, you know, it would have effect across a range of industries, uh, not only oil and gas. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if if the views of alternative research providers are somehow elevated or or fill a bit of a vacuum that's left behind by you know reduction some of the uh, typically sector by sector bullish investment banking uh, coverage. But yeah, I mean, it's still early days for for Mifid two, so it remains to be seen, I suppose. Okay, continuing on with the uh, regulatory theme, as this week's uh, cover feature was written by uh, Emma, as I mentioned before, and uh, she's been looking at the uh, the banks or the, the sector following the global financial crisis. I mean, I, I guess at the time we became aware that things weren't uh, well in that particular sector, you'd have just been starting university at that point. I think I was doing my A-levels. You may well have been. You may well have been. But I, I, I get the, the takeaway from, a, from an in, individual investor's point of view is that they, at that point, when it became obvious that there were serious problems regarding capitalization and uh, risk management in the banking sector, that actually took away uh, what had become uh, a reliable or predictable plank in many investors' portfolios as well. To think that banks were facing an existential crisis was unheard of in most people's uh, lifetimes. You do, I, I guess if you went back to uh, 29 and the failure of the US banks following uh, the, the Wall Street crash, and there'd been periodic problems ever since. But it engendered change as well because... Uh, there's been a number of uh, licenses granted since uh, 2010, I believe. Yeah, there's been a lot. I mean, um, like you said, the the big major kind of banks, the the big five, were major income stocks. You know, they, they were in a lot of people's portfolios, and that's still true to some extent. Although I would say, you know, that's primarily like Lloyd's and things like that is very well held still. Um, others not so much, but the, the major banks are un- unrecognisable to a certain extent um, than they were, you know, pre-financial crisis. But it is interesting at the moment, I think we we have reached a bit of a uh, a turning point. Is it inflation tobacco? I mean, the, the main the main point of this article is uh, looking at how valuations for those big high street banks has started to recover uh, in relation to the the challenges. Yeah, so kind of it has been a bit of an inflection point because the big high street banks were almost like untouchables, some of them, uh, certainly. But during the past kind of 12 months, we have seen on a forward price to book ratio that they have started to re-rate while actually the opposite is true for the vast majority of the challenger banks. Okay, um, what are the reasons uh, for this? Why, why are, we having, are we seeing some kind of a resurgence in terms of the, uh, the valuations? Well, I think the, the the main reason is because so much of the narrative around the big the big banks, and rightly so, um, for the past decade has been on strengthening the balance sheet. It's getting rid of these risk weighted assets, you know, simplifying their structures, particularly in the in in the case of uh, Lloyd's, Barclays, although they have kept um, a much smaller investment bank, and obviously RBS. It's, it's been really kind of getting rid of a lot of the bad debts. Um, you know, in the case of RBS, it's winding up their bad bank, which is uh, Capital Resolution, which they have now done uh, last year. So, so I think so much of the narrative has, has focused on that and increasing their, their capital levels that because they've made so much progress in that area, um, and we've seen that in the 2017 results, you know, they're across all the major lenders, their core tier one capital ratios have increased to such an extent that, for instance, Standard Chartered, which had cancelled their dividend, 
managed to reinstate it. I mean, it's, it's very meagre, but still. Barclays, which has been the laggard of the sector, um, after cutting their dividend, now this year they're going to be uh, reinstating the 6.5p a share dividend. So, you know, you're seeing those capital levels increase and signs perhaps of their income status coming back into play. I, I, in a sense, I, I guess we we shouldn't be surprised that it's um, taken so long for the, the banks to recover because in just about all that period as well, they've been operating in a low interest rate environment, uh, which is obviously unfavourable uh, for them. But I guess... Um, they were in no position to argue as well because uh, the general debate was uh, following the crisis as whether because of the effective repeal of most of the uh, Glass-Siegel uh, reg- reg- regulation in the US, whether the investment arm should be broken away. That that didn't happen uh, for the global banks. Uh, and so they've been forced effectively to uh, toe the line there. You're saying that the capital ratios uh, have come back up now as well, but that, are they showing growth in, in the normal areas of banking as well? Well, that's the interesting thing, and this is the point I make. Um, so, you know, you, you look at the, the way that the capital ratios are calculated, and yes, they've reduced their risk-weighted assets at a very uh, you know, at a massive rate sit during the past decade. But the thing is, is that on the other side of things, when it comes to equity generation, unsurprisingly, that's been very weak. I mentioned Barclays that they're reinstating that 6.5p dividend and their capital level, their capital ratio has improved a lot. But the main reason for that is because the risk-weighted assets have reduced a lot, not because um, they're making good returns on equity, very, very weak returns on equity. And that's, you know, that's unsurprising when interest rates are so low. Barclays hasn't been helped by the fact that its investment bank has been hurt very badly as well. And, it, and, and you have, they have to obviously hold a lot of tangible equity against that. So on that side, we've got them reducing their risk-weighted assets, cleaning up their balance sheets. On the bear side, with the major lenders, their returns on equity are still very weak. And plus, they've been assailed by one-off costs as well, regulatory failures, PPI being the most uh, yeah. prominent amongst them. Yeah, although on that, on that front, again, with the PPI, uh, the deadline for claims against that is August 2019. So that's another pro- positive for these, for these UK retail banks, that a, a line is going to be drawn underneath that. It's probably just as well, in a sense, as well, that their, their houses are uh, coming back into order because they're, they're also uh, faced now uh, with a, a medium to longer term challenge as a result of technical change as well. The, the rise of fintech, and this has been uh, particularly pronounced in, in the United Kingdom as well, and uh, technology such as uh, blockchain, promise to change the face of uh, retail banking. Yeah, retail banking in 10, 20 years' time, I think it's going to look, look nothing be- like it does today. I mean, we've already seen um, so so many of the, you know, the high street banks closing branches. You can see why. They've got, they've got to cut costs at the end of the day. So they have, um, I mean, actually just in the latest set of results, Barclays, Lloyds, Virgin Money, which is a challenger, just as a side point, they, they have actually announced lots of investment into digital banking because that is... So that, much, you know, that's got to be such a big part of their of their future business plans. Yeah, I think is uh, certainly with your generation as well. Uh, there's um, a far greater aptitude in terms of using uh, digital technology, uh, accessing your financial records that way. So as uh, uh, old codgers like me actually die off, I mean, it, it's, it will become the default banking position. 
Well, yeah, I mean, branches, branches and employing staff there are very expensive to run. I remember the days of passbooks. You wouldn't even know what I was talking about there, would you? No. Okay, so Emma, we, we've, we've covered what you uh, describe as a, a turning point in the market as well. And we've looked at uh, the improved capital ratios for the high street banks as well. The valuations have improved on the, on the back of this and uh, set to stabilise. Uh, but the opposite is true of the challenges. Is it just a, a, a relative point at the moment? Or what, why have they derated? Well, challenger banks, um, as as you mentioned earlier, I think there are about 19 new banking licences issued by the Bank of England. Since, um, 2010. since 2010. Between 2010 and 2017. So when the, you know, the high street banks kind of withdrew from some specialist areas of lending, they had to lower their risk profiles. A lot of these challenger banks came into play and, and a lot since have listed and they've done brilliantly. And the kind of return on equity that they've been posting, the loan book growth, it's been phenomenal. Hence why they've always traded at quite a hefty premium traditionally to the the high street banks. That has now started to, to come off slightly, particularly during the past six months. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I mean, firstly, you get banks like one Savings Bank, uh, Charter Court, which is a newly listed one, uh, Aldermore, which actually is now kind of delisted. But they, they focus very much on kind of very highly cyclical markets, namely buy-to-lets and, mor- and residential mortgages. Yeah, because there isn't one size fits all with challenger banks, is there? Yeah, that is a good point. It's, it's, uh, yeah, we say challenger bank, but actually it's everything from a one, a one Savings Bank buy to let specialist to virgin money which grows concentrates on kind of credit cards and things like that to metro bank which is which truly is a challenger bank you could say because they focus high street retail banking and their opening branches as well and their opening branches which is a very odd kind of growth growth uh, plan in my view but anyway um but yeah, so I think firstly, the fact that they operate in very cyclical markets and, you know, they, they aren't very diversified, some of them. So I think in the case of one savings, you can you can see why they've derated because, you know, investors will be a bit more nervous about that. The buy to let market has contracted. I think the other reason is because we have seen margin pressure, particularly for kind of challenger banks like Secure Trust, Close Brothers. They're operating in areas like asset finance. They do they do some uh, mortgages as well, but particularly in in the asset finance market and and also lending to kind of SMEs. The term funding scheme uh, set up by the Bank of England in two thousand and sixteen that basically uh, made a lot of cheap funding available to banks. So it meant a lot more lenders kind of rushed into the marketplace because it made made it easier for them to basically, you know, lend. And, you know, if you t- if you talk to Paul Lynham, who's chief exec of Secure Trust, he'll say that it was because these these banks basically haven't been pricing risk properly. So we've got a very, you know, crowded marketplace. This is areas. another consequence of the fact that we've, we're dealing with historically low interest rates. Yes, I mean, I, I would say... That is that's true to a certain extent, but I would say with the challenge, it's more the fact that we've got a lot more of this uh, cheap funding available, so it's it's easier for me to to accelerate my loan book and kind of undercut people on margin. So they've seen a lot of margin pressure, which I think has also kind of spooked investors. Yeah, I don't think the government would be quite so generous if interest rates were chugging along at to four and five percent, though. You know, I mean. Oh yes, yes. Sorry. Of course, the reason the reason why the term funding term funding scheme was introduced was because 
following the referendum, the base rate was slashed to such an extent that, you know, they thought we'll kind of take with one hand and give with the other and, and help you out a bit. I get there's uh, since the global financial crisis as well. There's been, uh, well, as you say, this has been unprecedented in the number of banking licenses granted in the UK. But there's also been an appreciable rise in alternative financing sources as well uh, across the board. And you think there must be there's a finite space there, and uh, and we've been operating in very unusual uh, in a very unusual environment there. So I, I would be minded there will be some attrition within the, the sector uh, at some point. What, what are out of the challenger banks as well? Are there any that uh, that you think have got better long term prospects? Yeah, I, I definitely do think so. I mean, I mentioned, you know, margin pressure and cyclical markets, but actually take one savings bank, for instance, you know, they do, they do operate primarily in buy to let. But the thing is, they cater to professional uh, landlords that do set up limited companies can obviously maintain the buy to let mortgage interest uh, relief, uh, which was a you know, big reason a lot of amateur kind of buy to let landlords have left the market, which has has been one of the reasons the market has contracted they they're posting very high i mean it's like best in class it's i think it was 26 percent return on equity which is uh well actually i, I haven't heard of one higher um mm. from any we'll of the that. other banks it's brilliant um you know they, they do pay a dividend i think they yield on, on, a, on a forward basis it's around 3.4 percent and they are trading at a discount. And I think over the longer term, you know, they, they've shown, you know, even last year, that they've, they've shown that they can continue to grow their loan book. They flagged some slightly higher costs because obviously the term funding scheme is, did come to an end in February. But I think over the, lo- of the long term, they, they've, they've got their kind of specialism nailed, which is really good. I would also say uh, just another one, Secure Trust. You know, yeah, they've, they've kind of flagged well, Secure Trust and, and Close Brothers actually have flagged some some margin pressure. But I think why I like uh, both of them is they, they've been very conservative. You know, they haven't just tried to write new business at any cost, which I think is really important. OK, so that's uh, that's obviously favourable from a, a risk management perspective as well. Anyway, it's a really it's a really interesting piece, and I, I guess it's uh, the, the story. It's a, it's an unfolding story at this point as well, but it is interesting that after so many years, that uh, our, our readership might like to take a look, a second look rather, at uh, those high street lenders. Uh, elsewhere in the magazine this week, it's a bit of a family affair for the the Boxels. Uh, Megan Boxel has been uh, writing about the prospects for M and A within the pharmaceutical uh, sector, and her father Chris has uh, written a piece for us, uh, looking at some of the pitfalls of uh, investing in the AIM market in London. Elsewhere in the magazine, we have uh, another investment trust write-up from uh, John Barron. Christello is talking about inflation. And in the stock screen this week, Algie Hall is looking at eight low-risk, high-yield shares. So uh, that's it for another week until uh, John returns from uh, Austria. So thank you very much, Alex, and thank you, Emma, and goodbye to all our readers. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.